Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. Okay, so it's time to get back to actual basketball conversation, at least until the next major off-the-court controversy rears its head. The way this season is going, that might be a matter of days, but let's hope not. So first, a quick address of the news of the day or recent days, and that's Jacques Vaughn having the interim tag taken off his title and being hired as head coach of the Brooklyn Nets with a contract through the 2023-24 season, leaving the reporters who reported Ime Odoka would be installed to replace Steve Nash, looking as if they got it wrong. I'll tell you what I think happened. Adrian Wojnarowski is represented by CAA. So is Udoka. My sense, based on how quickly the reports came out, is that there were conversations going on between CAA and Joe Sy, the Nets owner, about bringing in Udoka if the Nets decided to move on from Nash, well before they actually decided to move on from Nash. Those conversations began before Kyrie Irving lit himself on fire, figuratively, by posting the cover and link to a movie considered anti-Semitic. Now, think about this. A player playing in a city, New York, that has the largest Jewish population outside of Israel did something to offend that community and then initially refused to apologize for it and doubled down, suggesting He couldn't be anti-Semitic because he is a descendant of the true and original Jews. I'm guessing that neither CAA nor Psy expected Irving's self-immolation to be an impediment to bringing in Udoka. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but that's how things work in the NBA. They don't uh, believe that uh, real-world situations necessarily apply. The behind-the-scenes drama concerning the reporting 
though, is what I find most fascinating. Shams Sharania's net source is the Irving family. If you had any doubt about that, just see the latest post about how Kyrie and Josai and everybody's come together and come to understand that Kyrie doesn't actually hate Jews and they're going to repair all this. There was a it's one thing to report all this. We've we've just gotten to the point now where we have reporters that are doing the promotion work for various entities. It 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 and Shams isn't alone by any means. But it used to be something like that would be a release by the team. And then reporters, writers would examine whether that actually comes to pass. But they wouldn't pass on the report or the release verbatim because it would come off as an endorsement. It's a little bit like Kyrie posting the movie cover and link by virtually not commenting or changing anything in a particular statement or release essentially doing the work of the team or the player or whoever it is that is putting out the post. In any case, uh, Shams's source is the Irving family, and perhaps that's where he got the heads up that Udoka was in line. Woj is in the Josai camp, which is why I suspect we got the report that Sai tried to reach out to Kyrie before blasting him on Twitter. I will just let you know that some people dispute that that actually happened. Again, uh, I'm guessing that Woj went as far as he did with predicting Udoka would get the job because he was afraid Shams would get the drop on him. Woj is generally more careful than that. In any case, the reports that Udoka was in line coming out as quickly as they did, mere hours after Nash was let go, made it appear that Sai and the Nets were tone-deaf to the reason that Udoka was available in the first place. And having a tone-deaf owner and a tone-deaf player in the city where the NBA headquarters are based was simply too much for the league, the public, and the rest of the media to accept. Sai had no choice but to go in a different direction. Me personally... I think he made a wise choice. I think Jacques Vaughn is a very underrated head coach. And considering where the Nets are and the issues they still need to address, I don't know that they could have made a better hire. Enough about the Nets, though, because I am here in this episode to pay off my long-promised take on the Los Angeles Clippers and their chances of winning their first championship in franchise history. I conducted a survey of GMs, coaches, and scouts prior to the season, which covered a number of subjects. And one of them was who or what posed the biggest threat to the defending champions, the Golden State Warriors. I actually ended up doing a separate story about that. Another one of the questions was which team they expected to take the biggest leap this season. And the Clippers got a lot of love. They were the most popular answer to both questions. Now, the quote that attracted the most attention was from the piece 
on the Warriors. And it was from a Western Conference GM who said that the Los Angeles Clippers were not only the biggest threat to the Warriors in the West, but the Warriors actually were not even in their class. Now, the reaction was understandable. We're not used to hearing the Clippers touted as being in a class of their own unless it's a particularly low class. And certainly hearing that they are a notch above a defending champion was striking. The comment even caught me off guard, and I've tried to warn Warriors fans who believe a second dynastic run by the Warriors has begun to temper their expectations, that the young talent on the team is far from proven. It is a disservice to what Clay, Steph, and Dre were, how special they are, to say that Kaminga and Wiseman and Moody are capable of being the next iteration of that, even if you throw up Jordan Poole in there. He probably, probably should have started with, with him as far as that new young core. Again, suggesting that Jordan Poole is going to be the next Steph Curry or Clay Thompson. Uh, there's still a lot more to be proved. In any case, not only do they have young, unproven talent that's just unproven across the board, never mind championship-level proven, but the championship core that I just mentioned Steph, Clay, and Dre doesn't have as much mileage left as winning last year's title might lead some people to believe. Keep in mind, they won it essentially after having two years off, except for Steph. And now they played deeper than anybody, and they've got to come back and turn it around and do it all again. And doing it, having to carry a heavier load than they did last season because of that young talent that does not appear to be ready. I also see the Clippers as the most complete team in the entire league. And while I'm well aware of their history, look, I spent more than a few nights in that dingy L.A. sports arena with some 5,000 hardcore fans, Billy Crystal being one of them, watching Donald Sterling's smoke and mirrors, always selling hope teams, fall short over and over again while he was raking in 40 million off of his chunk of the TV revenue I don't consider it far-fetched that they could reach their first NBA finals this season where there's a will there's a way and billionaire Steve Ballmer clearly has the will and the money to make it a reality but I also don't want to ignore some troubling signs. Well beyond the fact that the availability of Kawhi Leonard for any stretch of time remains a serious question mark. And no, I'm not convinced that they can reach the finals without him. I don't think he has to be a major factor. He doesn't have to be the go-to guy. But he has to be a factor. I've covered the league for nearly 30 years, as some of you, most of you probably know. I know what championship teams are made of. I also know how they think and act and go about their business through the course of the season. And so far, there are some key elements missing. And I till, until I see proof of them, I'm going to be cautious about going all in on the Clippers' chances. I'm still, I don't know if I'm betting on them. I would still say they very much have a chance of getting there because it's early. But some things have to change. And one of those key elements 
is that championship teams play smart. They don't beat themselves. They may get beat, but it's not by their own hand. And I'll give you some examples of what I mean. I can't remember exactly which game it was. I went back to research it. I just remember watching and it alarmed me. It was a recent loss. And Marcus Morris, member of the Clippers, committed an obvious take foul. Now, for those who don't know what that is, it's fouling a player, an opposing player, in transition to stop a fast break by that opponent before they get anywhere close to the basket. And that was happening with such frequency last year in particular that the league now awards two free throws and the ball when such a foul occurs. Some players are still testing where the line is drawn on that. Can they make it look as if they're actually taking a swipe at the ball when their primary objective is just to stop the break? But they're, in any case, they're well aware they can't simply just commit an obvious foul. You can't just grab the guy, just can't tag him across the arms, whatever. They have to at least appear to be trying to make a play on the ball. And Marcus did not do that. He clearly had forgotten or was not aware that blatant fouls are to be avoided. Now, this wasn't the first game. It wasn't the first four games of the season. We were at least five games into the season. And that's just not smart. Against the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Clippers had a four-point lead with eight seconds left, courtesy of a three-point play by Reggie Jackson. Great drive, calmly made the bonus free throw. 119-115, Eight seconds left. Cavs get the ball to Donovan Mitchell. He races up the court and launches an off-balance three-pointer from roughly 35 feet near the sideline closest to the scorer's table. Paul George inexplicably challenges the shot so aggressively that he fouls Mitchell, sending him to the line for three free throws with four seconds left. Now, Mitchell made the first two and then finally missed the third, looking to miss it to get the rebound and actually shot it in a way where the the Cavs got their hands on the ball. Could have been incredibly disastrous. In any case, Clippers won but it was a gut punch to the entire Clippers team. Tyron Lue had a look on his face, an expression that read, I can't believe he just did that. Now, as I said, the Clippers won, but the win felt a little more hollow than it should have been, and it could have been the best win of the season to this point. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Teams with championship aspirations don't 
make such boneheaded plays, especially not by their best player. Because he's the one who's going to have the ball in his hands. He's the one who's for sure going to be on the floor at the end of games. And if you can't trust his decision-making, then that sends a anxiousness, an uneasiness through an entire team. As opposed to the guy where you go, oh, he's got the ball. We got this. I just need to do my job. We've got this. With Paul making plays like that, it's like, I better be ready. I might have to do something to save us because I'm not sure that he will. They also continue to lapse far too often into isolation basketball, which is also a element of smart basketball. They have some terrific one-on-one players. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, John Wall. I'd even put Reggie Jackson in that category. Norm Powell is unafraid to attack and get something with the game on the line as well and is fully capable. Marcus Morris, when he's going, he's certainly not afraid to shoot it. Can get to that mid-range turnaround. Can knock down a big three. Now, it's vital to have players willing and able to do all of that. And it helps to have more than one, especially in the playoffs. Team play in the postseason is more important than ever, but to win a title requires having the kind of player or players you can just hand the ball to and say, go get us something with the game on the line. The player's ability to disrupt the defense to the point that even if he misses, there is a chance for a putback or someone else having a wide open shot is enormous. It also helps... If where he operates on the floor, the options he's going to explore are familiar to his teammates, that they know what he's going to do as he begins to do it. It gives them a split second advantage to go where they need to go if he misses. If you want to know why the Utah Jazz were such a great regular season team but never lived up to it in the postseason the last few years, that's the number one reason. They had one player, Donovan Mitchell, capable of disrupting the defense. And because he was essentially a six-foot-one shooting guard, he all too often had to get really creative, sometimes taking shots that looked as if he'd invented them on the spot. Which meant his teammates had little chance to anticipate where to go or what to do once he started his attack. Think about it this way. What was, or even is, Mitchell's sweet spot, the place he's trying to get to other than the rim to get a shot. Even the way he attacks the rim is varied. And since we're on the subject of the Clippers, you know Kawhi is trying to get to that 7 to 10 foot range for comparison, usually on the left side of the paint. Paul George likes that spot on the right baseline for a pull-up jumper. Now, if I'm a teammate knowing that, I'm immediately, in the case of Paul George, I'm immediately getting to the far side or the near side of the rim early, even before he shoots, if I'm crashing the boards. If I'm not, I know that there's less chance of a quick run out because the opposition is going to be picking up the ball on the baseline rather than farther out on the floor. So if they are going to get out on the break, it isn't going to be somebody grabbing it and running. It's going to be a catch and a pass 
which means I can defend it differently. If I know it's going to be a long rebound, I got to make sure that I'm even or ahead of the guy that I'm guarding. If I know that it's going to be a baseline rebound and then my guy's going to be cutting out, I can hang a little bit thinking that maybe I can dupe them into throwing that pass and because I'm anticipating it, I can intercept it. Now, the Clippers have multiple one-on-one players whose sweet spots are well-defined. I gave you Kawhi. I gave you Paul George. Reggie likes the mid-range one-handed running floater. It's usually off of a pick-and-roll or pull-up jumper on the right side. John Wall is pulling up in the space left or right of the top of the key if he's, again, not trying to get to the cup. The question is, is any one of them good enough to be the man that takes you all the way to a championship. I wouldn't even give Kawhi Leonard that title. And he has two championships to his name. Because he's never been the undisputed man, but one of on those championship teams. He had Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, and Tim Duncan, don't forget. All willing and able to create a shot for themselves with the game on the line. In Toronto, he had Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet both equally fearless to take and make a big shot in a big moment. But here's the problem for the Clippers. None of their one-on-one players know how to balance scoring with creating the way, say, certainly Manu could and Van Vliet. They're not natural playmakers. I'd probably put Kyle Lowry in that category too. The Clippers guys are not natural playmakers. George is the closest. They're more put their head down and go get a bucket scorers, which undermines the Clippers' greatest strength. And that's that they can put five capable scorers on the floor with a couple in reserve. Somebody's not going. They can get two or three more on the bench. And when the ball moves, they are almost impossible to stop. You can put the ball in Paul George's hands But he needs to be thinking, I'm making a play. I'm not hunting a shot. Except in very unique circumstances. They've already kicked away several games this season. Games in which they held double-digit leads. As George and Wall and Jackson took turns using up the entire shot clock. Hunting for their shot. Or just launching one early not even making an attempt to find the best shot. And by the way, the win over the Cavs, that was after being behind by double digits, came storming all the way back, imposed their will and their ability to be the best team on the floor in the final five minutes. And then you had all of that, not completely dismissed, but certainly undermined as a result of those final seconds. The problem with the Clippers is also compounded so far by a lag in their collective defensive intensity when that one-on-one menagerie begins. All of that is how they lost twice to an Oklahoma City Thunder team that had no business beating them, certainly not twice in a row. And here's an example of what I mean taken from the final minutes of their loss to the Utah Jazz, another team that they had no business losing to. 
With about three minutes left, the Jazz had a six-point lead. Now, there was plenty of time for the Clippers to pull out a win. Three minutes, that's forever. But they acted as if it was under a minute. So they had two possessions to tie it up. And their stars each tried to get it back by themselves. Now, say right from the front, from the top. I'm not opposed to down by six with three minutes left, looking for threes, shooting threes. I have no problem with that. It's not necessary, but I understand it. But but create a wide open catch and shoot, ideally from the corner threes, not just any three. And that's not what the Clippers did. First, Wall launched and missed a three after one part uh, one pass from Paul George at the arc. Then PG did the same thing on the next possession. Again, after only one pass. PG then pulled up for a three on the break, missing with 20 seconds on the shot clock. That's three misfires in a row. Now, Sanity returned temporarily. Four passes, the magic that I'm talking about when I say that the Clippers are capable of just being unstoppable. Four passes, ball zipped around. Evita Zubac gets an a dunk, crushing dunk. But then it was back to hero ball. Wall launches and misses another three. Now, fortunately, the ball went out of bounds on the Jazz. It gives the Clippers another chance. 14 seconds on the clock. But two seconds after the inbound, George launched another three. It missed. Next possession, Paul George passes it ahead. Zubac scores on a layup. After a Clippers timeout, the Clippers inbounded the ball in the front court. Four seconds into the possession, 20 seconds left on the shot clock, George launches another three, which also missed. Now, what were the Jazz doing all this time? They were moving the ball and attacking the rim. They didn't take a single three in the final three and a half minutes. And yes, I know that they were ahead, so wasn't as essential that they take a three but the Clippers took seven threes looking for the quick strike with most of them and missed all of them again that's not smart basketball that's almost arrogant I you could see it with Paul he missed one well I'm not going to miss the next one well I'm not going to miss the next one look go ahead be aggressive take take a shot but allow the offense to get you that shot not just I missed the last one. I'm going to hoist another one as soon as I get the ball. I am assuming that Tyron Lue has allowed this to happen because he knows it's a long season. And there is no better way to convince a team that trying to win games single-handed is a recipe for disappointment than letting it happen. It's a painful lesson, but sometimes it's the best way to get your point across. And if there's a time to do that, this is it. But that habit is what undermined them in the bubble and reared its head at various times last season. That's what concerns me. This isn't just coming up now. This has been a hallmark. And just when I think they're past it, as when they demonstrated getting past the Utah Jazz last year to get to the 
Western Conference Finals. Uh, look, there's there's certainly a time to identify mismatches and let a player exploit that mismatch, but it's not all the time. And a team and a player have to recognize when those times are and understand how really rare it is that those situations or that approach is called for. It's certainly not the pro the approach to protect a sizable lead in the second or third quarter, which I've seen the Clippers do multiple times this season. So with all those questions raised, why would I still be bullish about the Clippers? Well, look around. The Western Conference is wide open. There are as many questions that need to be answered by every other team as the Clippers. Assuming that they'll never get there because of their history is ignoring what an ownership change and the hiring of a coach with a championship pedigree can do for a team. If anybody can get the Clippers to recognize that they are not playing the right way, Tyron Liu has that capability because he has a ring in his pocket to say, this is how you have to play if you want to get one of these. And what do you think the Warriors were before all that happened to them? Ownership change, coaching change, or the Milwaukee Bucks, or the Dallas Mavericks when Mark Cuban first came on board. The Clippers are going to break through. It may not be this year, but I assure you, Steve Ballmer isn't giving up until he reaches the top of the mountain. And for all the questions that I might have about these Clippers, I also don't see one that they don't at least have the capability to answer. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, I'm thinking it's time to address the Zion Williamson phenomenon that is going on in New Orleans. He has been captivating at the offensive end once again, unstoppable. But at the other end of the court, whew, there's some questions. And the subject needs to be delved into as far as exactly how far can the Pelicans go? Can they make this work? Is Zion willing to be at least representable when it comes to defense? We'll dive into all of that in the next episode. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 